If you have a Bible with you, uh, maybe you could grab it and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Uh, While you're finding it, and it might take you a little while to find it, I just want to do a little bit of a review, because really, today is the crescendo of what we've been seeing over the last month or so. And so, if you remember, what we saw two weeks ago was that basically, at the end of the day, we are all limited, and we all are in need of help. And we said that grasping this simple fact is actually one of the foundational elements of our finding true, lasting joy in life. That we have to start by understanding we are limited and we are not the solution to all of our problems. In fact, we saw that by trying to fix our problems, nine times out of ten we merely succeed in creating bigger problems either for ourselves or for others all of which highlights our desperate need for outside help. And that can be a problem too if we look for help in the wrong places. All the time, people are pinning their hope, pinning their confidence in a relationship or in a career or in money and all that money can buy. But what we really need is to find something, or perhaps more pertinently, someone to put our hope in that isn't limited in the ways that we're limited. And then what we said was that, in reality, surprise, surprise, God is the only one who truly fits the bill. So where we are limited in regards to time and scope, that's not the case with God. God's not limited by time, he's eternal, and God's not limited in scope. He's everywhere. He sees everything. He knows everything. So as we're worshipping earlier, there are contributions about God being present here amongst us. In fact, he's here and he's everywhere. He, he fills the entire universe. And on top of him not being limited in the ways that we're limited, God is also good in all of his dealings with us. So, where we're limited... And at times we struggle to grasp just how incredibly limited we are. God, by contrast, is absolutely unlimited and in all things is good. Now, having established those two things, we now reach the crescendo of this section in Habakkuk. So let's pick it up in Habakkuk chapter 2. Just to give you the context, God here is responding to Habakkuk's complaint about God using the Babylonians to punish his own people. And as we concluded with last time, all of this really raises the bigger question of how to explain this world that we live in. How to balance this all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, good God alongside the problems and the disasters and the pain and the suffering that we see in the world around us and which often encroaches on our lives as well. How do we explain that tension, that conflict? And God here responds by showing us two different ways of living. So here's what we're going to do. We're simply going to read verse 4. And then there's a bit of compare and contrast that we're going to have to get into. Then we're going to have to try to decipher and understand some Christian vocabulary, because 
We as Christians have a tendency to just regurgitate these statements and words without really thinking about what they mean or letting their meaning kind of hit us in such a way as it transforms how we see the world and how we go away and live our lives. All of that being said, let's pick it up in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. God says, see, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. He here is representative of the whole Babylonian nation. See, Babylon is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. So here's what you've got here. You've got this separating out of two different kinds of people. First up, you have a puffed up man who's not righteous. If you go back to two weeks ago, he's pretty much unaware of how, un- how limited he is. His confidence is very much in himself, his own power and his own ability. So he's his own answer. He can solve it all. He can do it all. He can get it done in his own strength. He has absolutely no need to submit to God. No need to humbly come to God and ask for help. He'll take care of it. He'll get it done by himself. And the Bible calls this kind of person puffed up. He's conceited. He's proud. He's his own saviour. If you like, he's his own God. And that's what's happening In this text, that's how God describes the Babylonians, this great nation who are opposed to the people of God. Now, of course, the irony is you can come across people like that, not just outside the people of God, but amongst God's people as well. There are tons of them. Probably the greatest example of this in the New Testament would be the scribes and the Pharisees. If you don't have a whole lot of church backgrounds and maybe aren't quite sure who those guys are, those were pretty much the ruling religious parties of Jesus' day. And they were constantly asking questions of Jesus in order to trick him and trip him up. But they could never do it. So they'd come to Jesus, they'd ask a question and they were absolutely convinced that they were going to fool him. For example, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And they just knew that if he answered this way, there was a whole group of people who would hate him for that and they could rally that group against Jesus. Or if he answered that way, they could grab this other group of people and rally that group against Jesus. But Jesus always saw through their trap. So whether it was about the resurrection or working on the Sabbath or about giving money to Caesar, Jesus would answer always in such a way as to completely diffuse the question. But because of the puffed up nature of religious people, it never really occurred to them, hey, maybe he is who he says he is. They just went, darn it, he won! And then they pulled back and tried to figure out another question to ask him that might fool him. So they just continued to think up these questions. Jesus would continue to dismantle them, then they'd retreat and figure out a new way to try and trick him. But they were never able to do it, because funnily enough, it's actually impossible to trick God. Now, the end product of this puffed up, conceited religious attitude is all of a sudden, you don't 
actually need God. I mean, you can use God's language, you can use God's doctrines, you can do a whole load of stuff in the name of God, but you don't really need Him at all. So, when you hear God speaking of people who are puffed up in unrighteousness here, don't think of people outside the church, because there are plenty of people who would call themselves Christians who are not the least bit righteous because in reality they don't live by faith at all. They merely believe in themselves. They can do it all in their own strength. They don't need any help. Really, they're the answer to all of their problems. And so, faced with calamity and disaster and problems and difficulty, suffering, these people invariably run away from God. In fact, often they'll shake their fist at Him, they'll dismiss Him, and they will struggle to overcome in their own strength. They'll try to get through by themselves. That's the first picture that's painted here. And then the second picture is of the righteous who live by faith. And so I want to talk about this because this word righteous carries a great deal of weight. Just to explain, the righteous are kind of those who live right before God. Now, what we know in the New Testament, looking back on the Old Testament, is that full righteousness, fully living right before God, is actually impossible for us. We, we just can't keep God's law to perfection. It's why in the Old Testament, they had the whole sacrificial system. It's why they were constantly going into the temple to kill bulls and goats and spotless lambs. In the end, they knew they couldn't be right before God. So they used the sacrificial system to enable them to be right before God. It's as though the animals they sacrificed were a substitute. They were a scapegoat. They took the punishment in their place. Now, of course, we know, don't we, from the New Testament, that all of this was a shadow of what was to come in Jesus, and that Jesus ultimately was going to be our righteousness. That in the end, you and I are right before God, not on account of our works or our efforts, but because of Jesus Christ not because of anything we've done. And that's where we begin to feel the weight of what's going on in this passage. The righteous, those who have right standing before God, those who are seen by God as holy and blameless and spotless. There's a way that these people live, and that way is by faith. Now again, we need to be careful that we don't hear that word and miss something of the force of what it means. Oh yeah, faith. We, we've got faith. We, we trust in faith. We, we live by faith. We're people of faith. And so, I want to spend the majority of our time today trying to unpack what faith is and where it comes from and how you exercise it and how you work it out. And then, I want to come back to this passage in Habakkuk and try to define what kind of man or woman you are. Whether you're the puffed up, self-reliant kind who's unrighteous 
or if you're the righteous kind who's living by faith. Now, just to say, by nature, all of us are creatures of faith. I want to give you a couple of examples that we're going to keep coming back to as illustrations. First of all, if you drove here today, which is probably a sensible thing to do, if you drove here today, you got in a car and probably, completely by faith, thought that your brakes would work. Now, you're here, so I'm guessing they did, but you got in your car and it was an act of faith to drive off. And then secondly, most of you are sitting in a chair right now, and you didn't test the chair before sitting down. It was simply an act of faith. It's very hard to function in everyday life without using faith. So, let's try and define faith, since we're all practicing it right now. What is faith? I want to read you one of the clearest definitions of faith in the whole Bible. It's found in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. The writer to the Hebrews describes faith in this way. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and an assurance of what we do not see. First of all then, faith is confidence in what we hope for. So when you got in your car, you weren't afraid probably of your brakes not working. There was a complete confidence on your part that those brakes were going to stop your car when you wanted the car to stop. And and there's complete confidence on your part that the chair that you are sitting in right now would hold your weight. None of you pumped your brakes just to make sure they were working before they, well, Russ might have done, but no one else pumped their brakes to see if they were working. But he did, he really did, uh, before they set out. You, You didn't push down on your chair before you got in the chair. You you had confidence. You had confidence in what? You had confidence in hope. You hoped your brakes would work. You hoped your chair would hold you. And this wasn't some kind of wishy-washy kind of, hope. I really hope it works out. No, you were confident of it. You were certain. You were sure. And so you sat down or you drove off in your car. And so the second part of that definition is not only is it confidence in what we hope for, but it is an assurance about what we don't see. So once again, let's use our two illustrations. Show of hands, did anyone crawl under their car this morning and check the brakes before you drove here? Did anyone make sure everything was connected correctly? Anyone? No one. No one did. Why? Because you had a deep assurance of what you couldn't see. What about your chair? Did anyone, while no one was looking, climb underneath the chair and check to make sure it was all kind of welded together the right way? No, you, you didn't look at it at all. You just sat down. Why? Because you had a deep assurance of what you couldn't see. So faith is confidence in what we hope for, It's a deep assurance in what we don't see. That's the biblical definition of faith. Now, what we know about faith from the Bible is that without faith, it's impossible 
to please God. So without confidence in what we hope for, without a deep assurance about what we don't see, you and I cannot please God. We don't have the ability to please God. So faith is monumentally important for us to live in, walk in, and exercise. So let's look, secondly, at where faith actually comes from. I want to take you to another passage, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to pick it up in verse 8. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says, For it is by grace, just to pause there, grace is another one of those Christian words that if you're not careful, you'll miss out on. Grace is just unmerited favor. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is a free gift. Let's keep reading. For it is by grace that you have been saved through, here's the word, faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, did you get what this verse is saying? Buddha said that you and I are saved, we're made right before God by the grace of God alone, through faith in that grace, and that the faith to believe in that grace isn't our own doing. We don't muster it up, it's not our choice to have it, but rather, even the faith to believe in the grace of God is given to us by God, so that at the end of the day, none of us can boast. So just by way of an aside, if you're here today and you believe in God, if you'd say you love God, you worship God, you're pursuing Jesus Christ, then really you have no position whatsoever in which to judge other people harshly. Because even the faith that you have to believe in God's grace for you was given to you by God. So you'd have nothing to boast in except Him. There's no room for looking down on others, criticizing others, gossiping behind the backs of others, being judgmental to others. We're all here by the grace of God. Now, all of that being said, if you're here and you're maybe struggling a bit right now, maybe you're sitting there and you feel like you have pretty weak faith, maybe you struggle to believe, maybe you find yourself just kind of plagued with these doubts, And what I've been saying can be a bit discouraging for you. But here's where I tell you to take heart. All of this puts us absolutely in a position of desperation where we've got to continually ask God for more faith. So if you find yourself here today struggling with faith, you need to go to God and ask for His help. Now, one of my favorite stories around this is found in Mark chapter 9. If you're not familiar with the story, Jesus, and he's kind of in a core of three disciples. They come down from the mountain of transfiguration, and they find the rest of the disciples arguing with the scribes, some of the religious leaders, because they tried to cast a demon out of a boy, and it hadn't worked. And so Jesus comes down right into the middle of this pretty chaotic scene, and he asks what's going on, at which point the father of the young demonized boy comes up to Jesus and explains, look, since he was young, 
my son here has experienced these kind of violent convulsions. It's as though there's this demon who keeps trying to kill him by throwing him into fire and throwing him into water. Unfortunately, up until now, we've always been around close by to, to drag him out of danger. But these disciples of yours over here, they've been trying to cast a demon out of my son. But for whatever reason, they, they don't seem to be able to do it. I don't know, m- maybe Jesus, you can help me. And Jesus says a quick line about believing and if you believe, all things are possible. And when he says that, the father falls to the ground sobbing and says to Jesus, I believe, but please help my unbelief. Now, if we're honest, how many of us are there? How many of us go, well, there is part of me that believes, but then there are other parts of me that have doubts, that hold back, that go, can God really do that? Is God really good? Can God really accomplish those things? Is God really in control? And so, in those moments, our prayer needs to be, God, I believe, but would you please help my unbelief? You see, faith is a gift of grace, and we need to come to God and ask Him for it. So we've seen what faith is. It's confidence in what we hope for. It's an assurance about what we don't see. We've seen where faith comes from. Ultimately, faith comes to all of us from God. So I want us to look thirdly at how we can grow in faith. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 10. I want to show you something that hopefully will help you understand why I'm constantly on at you about getting into the Bible, about reading the Bible, studying the Bible, memorizing passages from the Bible. I want us to start reading in verse 14. Paul says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? Talking of people kind of outside the community of faith. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So we've seen faith is a gift of grace and faith comes by hearing the word about Christ, hearing the word about Jesus. And so if you look at the rest of Paul's letters in the New Testament, you'll see that what he does in almost every one of them is constantly preach the gospel, preach the good news about Jesus to people who already know it. He constantly draws their attention to the fact that their righteousness, their right standing before God isn't theirs. It's, here's a religious word, imputed. In other words, it's attributed, it's credited to them by Jesus. Now, for those of us who really struggle at times with feelings of guilt, 
those who walk around a lot of time kind of feeling shame, those who can't get past ourselves enough to be released to love and worship Jesus. Here's the gospel. The gospel isn't that you are good enough. The gospel isn't that you can earn your way to God. The gospel isn't that you can pay God back for his love for you. The gospel is that where we couldn't be obedient to God's law, what we couldn't do by obeying him fully, God himself did by sending his own son. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's law. He lived this perfect, spotless life and then credited that to our account. Now, the other week, I got into a bit of trouble with a few people for saying that we are all sinners. I guess I was simply trying to make the point that from time to time we all sin. But the reality is, for those of us who are in Christ, God doesn't view us as sinners. He views us as having the righteousness of Christ. Won't you, just for a moment, consider how God the Father views His Son. Think about how God the Father looks at Jesus, what He thinks of Him, what He sees. Because that's how He views you. That's how He sees you. That's how He thinks of you. We let that sink in. It's unbelievable. The way the Father sees Jesus is the way He sees you. Seems unbelievable, but it's true. If we have confessed our sins to God, if we have trusted in Jesus for our salvation, we as a free gift as an expression of His grace towards us. We receive His perfect, spotless, sinless righteousness as a free gift. And so we might look at ourselves and just see all of our failures, see how far short we fall all the time, and perhaps we struggle to believe that God could ever love or accept us. But the reality is, God looks at us and sees his own precious son. And Paul is desperate to remind us of this truth. Because a lot of the time we have a tendency to go one of two ways. Some of us have this tendency to, to stumble a bit, be a little bit slow in our sanctification, a little bit slow in this process of becoming more like Jesus, living to please Him, developing more of the character of Jesus. We, we stumble around trying to do it, but we keep failing. It's like we struggle on trying to do it all in our own strength and keep tripping up. And as a result, end up living more and more with condemnation and guilt and shame. And then others of us, it's like the complete opposite. We're the super disciplined ones. We get up early every morning and read the Bible and pray for hours. We'll go here, we'll be part of this, get into that, do this. All of which is great, don't hear me wrong. But the danger is we can very easily become conceited and proud 
and puffed up. And then we lose sight of our need for God. End up simply using God to make much of ourselves. And so, Paul wants to constantly remind us, your righteousness, your right standing with God is actually Christ's righteousness given to you, credited to you, attributed to you. And he wants to drum into us again and again and again the centrality of the cross, that our debt to God was fully absorbed in Jesus' death on the cross, which is why Paul is able to say in another one of his letters in Galatians 2, he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's as though he's saying, I'm dead. I've died. Paul, in all of his shortcomings and all of his failures, And every time he'd sold out, every time he'd failed to do what God had asked him to do, all of that died on the cross with Jesus Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. That part of me, that sinful part of me, no longer lives. It's dead. And then he reminds us of the resurrection. He reminds us of the new life we now live by faith in the Son of God. It's not just that the wrath of God towards us was taken in Jesus and that Jesus' perfect life was credited to us. It's like Jesus, even now, today, right here, in this moment, is constantly washing and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. It's as though God is putting us in this huge spiritual bathtub and with the water of the Word is washing us clean so that we can be rid of that shame that we carry around with us, so that we can have all of that disgrace and have all of that weight of condemnation and guilt completely washed away. So here's the reason why you need to read the Bible. Here's the reason why you need to sit under the gospel over and over again. It's because by hearing it, faith grows. And as the gift of faith grows, you become more and more confident of what you're hoping for, and you develop deeper assurance of what you cannot see. Now, I guess all of this begs a question. If faith is a gift graciously given to us as we hear God's Word, how often, how regularly are you putting yourself under those truths of the Gospel? Are you studying the Scriptures? Are you listening to the teaching you get here every week and going away and applying it to your life? Are you taking hold of the truth of God's Word and allowing it to stir more and more and more and more faith in you. Listen, you don't read your Bible to impress God. You read it to meet God, because as you meet Him, as you encounter Him, as you experience Him, as you understand more and more of who He is and what He's done in your life, inevitably it's going to strengthen and grow and increase your faith. So don't feel guilty if you don't read the Bible. That's missing the point completely. Feel the loss. 
for not reading it. Feel thirsty, desperate to get to grips with it more so you can grow in faith more. We must constantly put ourselves in a position where we can feed on God's Word so that when we're facing times of trouble and issues and problems that we can't explain and suffering that we're struggling to endure, at those times we'll find an anchor for our souls. What's the anchor? It's faith. It's faith. Faith in what? Faith in the Gospel, the good news about Jesus the hope we've found there, and our confidence in that hope, our assurance of what we cannot see, that it all works out for our good and God's glory in the end. And it doesn't mean that we can't still go through difficult seasons. It doesn't mean we can't hurt right now. It doesn't mean we don't weep right now doesn't mean we can't go through seasons of agony right now. It simply means that when all is said and done, our hope ultimately is not in now, but it's in the assurance of who God is and what will come. So here's why. I want to push all of you to be people of the Scriptures, people who devour the Bible. Here's why I want to push you to be people of the gospel. As you get into these things, as you believe these things, as you grow in your understanding of these things, as you begin to practice these things, they grow, and in time they become second nature to you. So going back to the examples earlier, You didn't think to check your brakes this morning. You you didn't consider checking that chair. And when faith is exercised, when it's used over and over and over again, it becomes like the brakes in your car. It becomes like that chair that you're sitting on at the moment. Using it becomes second nature to us. I remember years ago now watching both my sons learning to sit on a chair. I tell you, they made it look like an Olympic event. It's like they needed to go into training for it. When, when they were really young, they tended to kind of get one cheek on and then they kind of fall off the other side. But that's one of the reasons I'm not sitting on here in case I do that this morning. But they don't do that anymore. It just comes naturally to them now. And it comes naturally to me. It comes naturally to you as well. Why? Because you've sat down enough to know that 99.9% of the time that chair is going to support you. And how did you learn that? You probably learnt it through your consistent experience of sitting in chairs over a lifetime. And it's the same with faith. When you exercise faith, when you put yourself under the Word of God and under good teaching, when you put to test what He says and you watch how time and time and time again He does come through, your faith grows. You become stronger in faith. And so when faced with calamity and problems and difficulty and suffering, you find yourself running towards God. You trust that though you don't understand it all, He is still in control and He is good. And you trust Him for the strength you need to persevere. And so coming back to Habakkuk, 
Which one of them are you? You've got two men, two people painted in that picture. First type, you've got puffed up, conceited, self-reliant, with no need for God. You're it. Your, your faith is in you. You can get it done. You can accomplish it. You can make it happen. I simply just want to ask the question, how's that working for you right now? Do you have peace? Do you have a lot of joy? Do you feel secure? Are you satisfied? Do you live in your own strength? Or do you live by faith? Is your faith in God? Is your confidence rooted in the truth of the gospel, the good news about Jesus? I want you to be honest. Please don't make it more complicated than it really is. Are you putting your hope, your confidence in your limitedness or in the reality of the one true unlimited God? Just think about it. In day-to-day life, where's your confidence? Is it in you? Is it in what you can do, what you can accomplish? how you can get things done? Or is your confidence in the reality of who God is, that he cares for you? And though you might not understand everything, in the end he is good, and he's gracious, and he's loving. Let me tell you how you can perhaps work out where you stand in all of this. Are you consistently pursuing God? Are you chasing time with him? Are you looking to grow in understanding of the truth of his word? If the answer to that is no, then in reality you're a functional atheist. It's like you're going, I've got faith, I just don't practice any of it. That's kind of like, I've got loads of food, I just never eat any of it. And so what happens in the end is you starve to death. In the same way, faith must be exercised, it must be used, it must be practiced. How do you do that? By pursuing the God who our faith is in. So there might be a confidence in what we're hoping for. So there might be an assurance about what we can't see. As we read on in Habakkuk, we're going to see how God judges the nation of Babylon next time we'll see how and why he does that. But before we go any further in this book, really this is a question you've all got to answer. Do you possess genuine faith in God? Or do you possess a brittle faith in yourself? Listen, you being here today doesn't make you a believer in Jesus Christ. I wouldn't be doing any of you, any favours at all to pretend that because you are in this room right now, you're a Christian? The key question is, do you have faith? Are you exercising that faith? And if the answer is no, then the chances are you've somehow inoculated yourself to your real need for Jesus. You've put misguided confidence, confidence in a place that cannot sustain you in the long run will eventually crumble around you. So my prayer is that you might hear enough and that even today God in his grace might grant you the faith to believe. 
I want to invite you to stand and we're going to pray.